Always is my co-host and resident Scream King. It's Hanky. I do appear nude in 132 movies made between 1981 and 1989. <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy that for a second. That would make you how old? I'm in my mid-60s, but the audience doesn't need to know that. Your frame of reference for movies isn't very good for being in your mid-60s. I, uh, I'm wet-brained. <laughs> Lifelong drinking problem, fella. It ex- there's, a, there, you know, there's your holes. It explains it all. 1962. Who would remember 1962? What happened? Kennedy was president. Um, I, I can't tell you. I wasn't alive. I have no idea what happened in 1962. Was it a good year for horror? We don't know. I seriously doubt it. It was probably a good year for Bert I. Gordon and fucking Colossal Man or some bullshit like that. The Amazing Colossal Man. William Castle was probably doing something unless he was dead. He died in the 70s. Most William Castle movies are intolerable. Just like Death by DVD. Oh, all these episodes are gold. Yeah, the Suspiria one was pretty good. This is going to be a a barrel of monkeys. This is going to be a great... I I don't even know what that reference means. I don't know why I said it. Uh, This is going to be a show. It'll be a show, like we say on every show. It was a show. It's going to be a show. We have a lot of stuff to get into, but we've got our What We Saw Weekly, our riveting fan-favorite segment of What We Saw This Week. Uh, Do you want to go or do you want me to go? Ah, you go. I watched a movie on Shudder. Surprise. That is not something to be, like, you know, being proud of. But I watched a movie called, uh... I don't hate Shudder. I don't have any... It's got some okay stuff. I I think for an average, like, horror fan, if you're just, you know, interested in movies and you enjoy a wide selection of different stuff... If you're a base horror fan and it's something you're getting into, it's pretty good service. If you're a lifelong, like, nuts horror fan, there's not much on it for you other than the occasional thing. I do... pay $7 a month to watch, like, two or three things on it. I do deeply enjoy a lot of the European and Chinese and German movies and all the crazy stuff from the overseas area that they throw on for us. It's fun now and again. I like more. And they have, you know, the Shutter Originals. They brought us the Wolf Creek series that was nice to finally see. I oh, watched just... a movie called um, Incident in a Ghost Land, I believe is the title. I can't remember it. It's kind of a Masters of 
kind of sounding, isn't it? That's, that's uh, incident off a mountain road. No, no, this is incidents in a ghost land. It was directed by the French dude who made Martyrs. I can't remember his name at all, but uh, it's one of his new movies. And it is, it's all right at times, but like that dude had something going with Martyrs. He made a very interesting movie that I think will be remembered as a classic horror film. What's funny is I've seen this movie and I I have no recollection of what it's about that. Unfortunately, I guess that might have to be taken as a review that I've seen this movie. Something, something home invasion. A ghost land or in, yeah, in a ghost land is it's a home invasion thing and it's I guess you could consider it has a twist in it but the twist is basically that this one chick has a lot of weird she has no coping mechanism for trauma so she's basically and I'm spoiling right here I I will spoil the whole movie right here so if you don't want to hear it fuck off Um, where basically she's being raped whatever I mean that's generally what we're going here with this home invasion thing and it's so traumatic to her that she goes into an, her imagination imagines her life 10 years in the future of how awesome it is and her family her husband and all this stuff so you keep going back and forth between her fantasy world and her actual reality of like being stuck in this house with um, a drag queen and a crazy pig man who are like treating them like her and her sister like dolls and she talks with HP Lovecraft in her fantasies I don't know I, I guess the whole point of the film is the shock value of hey guess what it was a good Lovecraft this 10 years later thing of her life 10 years later that's not real all the things of her getting out of the home invasion 10 years ago never happened she's still in it and then every yeah I mean that's generally the premise here is we just keep going back and forth and her not being able to deal with her violent reality she's living and that's an interesting concept but it doesn't go anywhere particularly interesting after that I mean it does have a little bit of violence in it that you could consider to be a little bit more hardcore violence I mean from the guy who brought you martyrs and some uncomfortable sexual assault type things in it but overall it's just kind of a bland modern you could almost say slasher film it doesn't really say anything I think that's my biggest problem with it it's just not saying anything and the part where H.P. Lovecraft comes in to talk to her and tell her she's such a good, great writer I'm like what the fuck is going on why is this like who cares I know you're obsessed with H.P. Lovecraft but why like why are we having this conversation in your imagination with him it's uh, just, I think it's, it's to give her strength the plot. Well, yeah, it, has, guess, it has nothing to do whatever. with the plot but you know you gotta stretch runtime. I think yeah. the, I mean and I'm more or less agreeing with you I think the big problem here is it was watered down and both of us went into this movie going man this guy that did martyrs this is going to be batshit and it's not that you have to do that every time let's look at like Ari Aster I think he is calmed down with Midsummer a little bit more than Hereditary you don't always have to go balls through the wall with your sequel but this was just it it was just such an American movie it was boring because of that and what makes martyrs interesting and kind of a great film is not the level of violence in it Violence is like in the in the background as far as I'm concerned of martyrs is the concept of martyrs and where it goes ultimately is what's interesting about martyrs. The the hardcore violence who gives a shit. Anybody can do that. I mean that's what they do with the Serbian films, put a lot of hardcore imagery in it, but like they didn't say anything. So who cares about that? Yeah, if it doesn't have a purpose. And this is it's the same thing with 
this new film it's just like it doesn't really have a purpose I guess you can say something you're saying a little bit of something about how people cope with trauma but you're not really addressing that as much as you are just toying with that idea of it and it just doesn't go anywhere for me but it wasn't terrible it's like a it's like a three or three and a half out of five movie overall I didn't think it's terrible but at the same time it just I didn't see the purpose in the film it was visually attractive I'll give it that yeah, I mean, he, he as a visual filmmaker, he, he is interesting, but it ultimately just felt like anybody could have made this film. Well, you know what it, it really felt like is like M. Night Shyamalan made the film. <laughs> it had a very unfortunate M. Night Shyamalan feeling. And back in the day, you know, I, I was very critical always about uh, Shyamalan Ding Dong, which I will always call him. But he's not that bad. I get it. I get his twists. But as, as a filmmaker, you know, as a guy out there working and working on his own vision, you know, I'll give him credit. He does some interesting things. He's got some cool concepts and he's all right at his job. I, I don't mind watching his movies and trying to figure out how he made them and shot them. I just, you know, things like the movie with Bill Pullman where they're living out in the woods. Eh, that's not for me. It's just not for me. Yeah, and I think there's an attempt in this film to unravel the layers like he did in Martyrs, and that's what's interesting about Martyrs is how those layers just constantly keep unraveling as the film progresses. But this one, once that first layer is unraveled, it's got nowhere to go. The first, it's unraveled like 35 minutes in. So now, yeah, Martyrs had a brutal quest for like I don't know. It, it just kind of seemed kind of a pointless film. Martyrs featured a, a lot of switcheroos. Here's uh, my pick, which was another visually handsome movie. It's got Elizabeth Harvest from 2018 by a guy named Sebastian Gautierrez or Gautier. I don't know. I, I can't even really speak English that well. It stars Abby Lee from Neon Demon and Mad Max 4. It's about this brilliant man. He marries a woman and he shows her his home and tell her, tells her that there's one room you can't go into. She goes into the room. Uh, the next day, he chops her into pieces with a machete, comes back with another version of her, and the movie progresses, and you find out there's a heinous subplot going on about creation. It's a, sort of a revelation story. God makes Adam and Eve, and he tells them, don't eat from this tree of life. Adam's hungry. Eve gets him an apple, and then the old fuckaroonski, and the rest, I guess, is us and that whole story. But it's very, it follows the same plot here of somebody trying to absolutely control a creation and trying not to completely spoil it. That's initially or pretty much what it is, somebody trying to control a creation. And it, it's a horror movie, definitely. It's light on gore. What is in the violence shown in the movie is... Uh, I'd still give it a weak rating with that, but it's very pretty. It's kind of, it reminded me visually, obviously they're a fan of guys like Nicholas Reffin and uh, Nicholas Winding Reffin, sorry, and Dario Argento. There's a lot of aspects of Suspiria and, and late 80s, Tenebrae, Deep Red uh, Argento in the shots and how the movie looks. It's very pretty. Uh, I think you'd find it on Amazon Prime. You might have to pay a few bucks for it, but it's worth checking out. And Abby Lee is really, really hot. So if that says anything, if you're very shallow like me, like, like, like Hank is, you like Which to watch the movie. Hot. I like watching hot ladies do things. I do. That's one of the biggest reasons why I still argue Neon Demon is a significantly great movie displaying realism because it's honest with beauty's the only thing. And guess what? We're talking about hot ladies doing things tonight. That's my segue. <laughs> hot We're chicks. talking about 
scream queens and not just all scream queens. We're talking the specifically scream about queens. the three major scream queens of the, the Holy Trinity. And we're not talking. We're not. I'm not going Jamie Lee Curtis here. We're not talking about Amy Steele and all the. Um, I would say. A picture scream queens, the ones that are they're like, all you know, good and fine, but we're talking about B movie scream queens, the the major ones, the ones that I heard about a lot in the 80s. I so think, we're talking about, I mean, I'll, I'll make a bold statement and I'll put my foot down behind it, but when you say scream queens to me, unfortunately, every, that title is there's a TV show about it. I mean, there it's just a widely used title. There are thousands of young actresses that add that to their bios i'm a scream queen but when you say that term to me there are only three scream queens that directly come to mind that are the quintessential scream queens the greatest scream queens of all times i am sure you can rank the three however you want between them but these girls are the scream queens this is what i think of what i think most people should think of hopefully if you listen to the show you will think of it this way these are the scream queens these are the three that were really like really branded the title scream queen and really owned up to it and said this is what i am i am a scream queen no jamie lee curtis saying well you know i'm an actress and no these no i'm a scream queen this is what i do and i mean some of these girls went on and did some other things as we'll progress and talk about as the show gets some girth to it but mainly it's it's i say B movies I mean and that's really what makes a scream queen sure Jamie Lee screams her ass off in Halloween there's a little bit of hollering I'd say in the fog and terror train and prom night you know she gets a little pippy but it's not really what defines a scream queen it's the genre it's a part of being the vixen being the sex symbol inside of the the movie realm i guess you could say and that's what definitively these three girls that we're going to talk about are that these are you know the most sultry uh <laughs> do anything you can watch them do anything i mean like I one of the call girls them girls yeah they, well, they are ladies i think we'll call them ladies they were women with a Y because they are, I mean, they were also very strong women within these films. They, I mean, they might have played ditzy characters. They might have. On occasion. Um, I mean, they all kind of tripped around. Beauty, but they were all, but I mean, it was nothing antithetical to being a woman. They were all very strong women in all these films. I mean. Well, one out of all of them is the strongest, though. One out of all of them <laughs> kicked ass much more than the others. I mean, I don't want to say anybody is less than the other one, but there's one specific Scream Queen that I think holds a, a big prize in the ass-kicking book of Scream Queen history. Oh, there's some a major one, and we're like, we haven't even brought up the names yet, but we're going to be talking about Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, and Michelle Bauer, or Michelle McLean, depending on how she's billed and whatever film we're talking about. Um, that didn't catch on so much. I think what her ex-husband wasn't happy with her using the Bauer name, so she changed it, and it just did not get billed that way. People she was just always Michelle Bauer. I mean, yeah. that's what I always knew her. It didn't matter um, what the fucking credit said. I was like, no, it's Michelle Bauer. I know who she is. Uh, it's unfortunate because that happens a lot. There's a, somebody in one of the movies we're going to be talking about later on that is constantly billed under an incorrect name instead of what they actually went by or were billed by, and it, it happens. And, like, these were three very important women for the genre, and 
specifically, I would say, to the B-movie genre of the 1980s. Um, they were in a lot of A pictures as well, um, but what they starred in and what they were like most known for were very B pictures, but also very profitable B pictures. I mean, they were in a lot of David Dakota films. They were in um, a lot of like Kevin Tenney films of like really like, you know, million dollar budgets and below films. But they were always that's how you sold these movies were these three women and their personalities for the most part. That's a pretty good way of putting their careers because they were definitely in movies that cost, you know, three hundred dollars to make and then three million dollars to make throughout the entirety of their careers. And all three of them are acting now. I mean, I think Linnea Quigley has over one hundred and twenty acting credits. Brink Stevens has, I believe, over 170 acting credits. I believe Michelle Bauer has about 150, and and I mean probably more now. They're working every day of the year. These, if they're not, yeah, if they're not doing horror conventions and appearances, they are working on something every. And it's it's fun. It's nice seeing a resurgence of like these are the scream queens I know you grew up with and I grew up with, and that's two different generations. There is a slight age gap because I'm in my 60s, of course. Uh, <laughs> But it's just it, it's just relieving sometimes to know that you know look look at we have a piece of our childhood still, but they well, no I mean, longer had, are as nude as they used to be. I literally had posters of all these women hanging in my room at one point. I would get out of Fangori or Gorzone. I had Linnea Quigley uh, poster her in like a metal brawl. Um, Michelle I had Bauer the with the chainsaw from Hollywood uh, chainsaw hookers. Oh yes, the, she even had her own product line going of the uh, Linnea Quigley horror workout. For Christ's sakes, I mean she put out enough, a product. I, uh, I I'm gonna get this information wrong. But there is, uh, I guess, a resurgence in that. Somebody has re-released them or remastered the Linnea Quigley workouts, and they're they're doing con appearances that you can go see the showings and screenings, not film festival, but horror conventions. So somebody has completely remastered all those and brought them back, which those were fucking hysterical. That it, it was essentially a workout show, an aerobic show, but you had the zombies in the background, and it was Linnea Quigley. Well, like, all three of these women, like all came from similar backgrounds, and I don't mean the way they grew up, I mean the way they entered the business for the most part. And most of them entered the business as body doubles or um, or just showing up to be nude in a film, like Michelle yeah, Bauer's God. penthouse pet. Linnea um, was, I think, one of the backup dummies in Tourist Trap. She's been in a lot of stuff, like before she really got her big break and was known under her name. They all started as basically being nude models in films when an actress didn't want to get naked or they just needed nudity in a film. They were willing to take their clothes off. Like, uh, I think Brie Stevens' first you know what big sucks? break was Slumber Party Massacre. I'm willing to do the same thing, and I don't get any work. Yeah, because no one wants to see you naked. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's unpleasant. You're right. But all of them, like, have their, like, their very specific strengths as far as acting goes. And um, I always kind of broke them down like this because Linnea Quigley, um, despite whatever movie she was in and what her role was in that film, I always found her to be the most gifted comedian out of all of them. She was able to always make her characters very interesting and funny all at the same time. She's got great comic timing. Um, Brink Stevens was always very sultry and sexual, like sensual. Um, she was always, I don't know, I always prefer Brink out of all. And she was like my big crush as a child. I was just like, oh Jesus, that's, that's what a real woman is like. 
Um, and Michelle Bauer was like, she always played it dits very well. Um, I know that sounds like <laughs> demeaning, but it's not at all. I mean, she always like went into every project with like a really positive attitude and no matter what script called for she was able to, to pull off what her role was even even if like you know you're just there to show up and take your top off she at least made her role interesting while she's doing that it wasn't just like okay I'm here to get naked now fuck off no she generally enjoyed the work that she did and she always like it always looked like she was having fun particularly but I think they all had their their strengths in filmmaking I mean for Christ's sake Bruce Stevens has a, a PhD, I think, or a master's. A master's. In, uh, a master's in um, marine biology. Marine biology. So these women are not like the most interesting thing played. about Brink Stevens' master's in marine biology that I'd like to know more about is she was apparently expelled from her university for illegal dolphin studies, and I just want to know so much more. There's so much more about illegal dolphin studies that we need to know about <laughs> the general public, but I like to classify them as the three Bs. So you got the babe, the brain, and the brawn. Linnea's the brawn, Brink's the babe, uh, I got it all backward. Linnea's the brawn. Backwards. <laughs> Linnea's the brawn, Brink's the brain, and then we got the babe. That sounds more correct, actually. Yeah, that's. I think that's a better fair assessment. But despite what their roles were in a lot of these films, they all had their talents. They always brought it to every role that they ended up portraying. And um, Linnea, despite no matter what her performance called for, always showed up and did the like the best possible job she could. And like all the comedy she was in, I thought she was always really good in those. Like uh, the Vice Academy series specifically, like uh, the first three of those I think she was in. Maybe just before even, I think it's just the first two, but even before Return of the Living Dead, Vice Academy is what my earliest memory of Linnea Quigley was in that and I say up all night yeah she's strongly hysterical and carries those two movies and for the most part throughout her career she plays usually a badass I think Return of the Living Dead is probably her most sissy performance I mean because trash breaks down oh I like that let's go do that that's my trash. That's as good as it gets, baby. So Linnea Quigley, would you say that's your favorite scream queen out of out of the big three? No, Brink Stevens, you said was your favorite. Your Brink. Well, as as far as sex appeal goes, I would go with Brink Stevens. As far as like acting goes, I would go with Linnea because Linnea always like really gave a, an interesting performance in all of her films. And like Michelle Bauer is just fun to have her around. She's almost like um, the cheerleader, I'd say, out of all of them. Yeah, I guess going on sex appeal, I have to side with you. I always did fancy Brink Stevens, but Linnea will always... When you say Scream Queen first of all, Linnea is what comes to mind. Yeah, no matter what, Linnea Quigley is synonymous to me with the term Scream Queen, and then Brink and Michelle filter in. And and then you got Amy Steele, Jamie Lee. They all have their place, and I agree, sure. These were the first girls to do it, but that doesn't mean that they're what makes it quintessential. And their body of work, albeit important, Jamie Lee Curtis contributed greatly to early horror history and it they're great movies there's nothing wrong with them but the core of the scream queens that we're discussing here this is yeah, this is exploitation at its best this is the height of and like i said the early era of 80s exploitation moving into what i call bubblegum exploitation bubblegum 80s and it's just great it's all great everything on this list is solid gold 
And what's interesting about all of these films is the ones we'll be talking about tonight. Um, there's a lot of crossover between directors, actors, and not just uh, these three screen queens. A lot of these, like all the same actors kind of work for the same directors. And it was just this very incestuous kind of um, era Even in- of B Hollywood. Even in one case, there is a reference in one movie to a follow-up movie that hadn't been made yet, but the script had been written. So there's just a lot of back and forth between these things, which I, I never picked up on that until I recently rewatched some of these movies and by accident watched one and they fall in order that one references the other and they're both by the same guys. So makes sense. And uh, well, like at least two of the films stars all three of them, and then sporadically they um, have two of them, the films we're talking about tonight. Because the one thing I did want to avoid is talking about a lot of more recent Dave Dakota films, like you know the thirteen thirteen series, where it has all three of them in the film. But I just can't get through his newer stuff because his shit has always been cheap, but it always has some charm in the eighties, and now it's a lot more product and. And I'm just not very interested in, like, you know, like, a, like not, I wouldn't go as far as to say, like, gay porn, because that's not what he's specifically making. He's making a lot of gay softcore films now, and I just don't find them that interesting, you because know, most of the plots revolve around dudes taking their shirts off, and that's basically what the entire plot is. It's like, hey, we're a bunch of hot dudes. Let's take our shirts off, and then there's barely any script around it, or his talking movie, or any of those things. He's doing the same thing he did in the 80s, but in Instead of being nude women, it's nude men. Well, partially nude men. You, you're rarely going to even get an ass shot in these films. It's mostly just dudes with no shirts and underwear. It always has baffled me why there's such a, a line drawn between being able to show female full frontal nudity, but you can't have flapping cock. Dave is doing what he has always done, which is survive, and he's making films so he can survive and continue to make films, and I will always respect him for that. I don't always agree with his product and how it turns out because he makes a lot of shit over the years, but he's remained relevant in the film industry, which is a, a like he's still he's more relevant than uh, his old boss Charles Band. He's still more relevant than him because he's still able to crank product out and still make a living off of it. I mean, if you look at any of his new stuff. That's his house. Every single one of the, his newer films take place in his house. And he has a pretty goddamn nice house. So um, Dave's doing fairly well for himself, I would say. As were some of his old movies shot in his apartment. Uh, all these guys that we're going to talk about amongst the Scream Queens started their careers in the same fashion, too, in the Roger Corman school. A lot of them shot porn, hardcore, and softcore in the late 70s, early 80s. Started with Charles Band and Full Moon and Empire. So they all really came from... Like the quote unquote film school life of learning how to shoot and get something done as quickly as possible on the lowest possible budget and still make an interesting product. The king of which somebody I love talking about. And I, I, this guy's a fucking hero. He should be a hero to everyone. Fred Olin Ray is going to get brought up a lot tonight because he's the greatest. Well, that's the interesting thing about all the films because it does star one or all of these ladies. And 
all the directors and producers, they all like intermingled because like Fred Owen and Ray used to work with David Dakota sometimes. Um, they all used to, each other's sets. They used each other's actors. Mm-hmm. They wrote with each other. They all, you know, I don't want to say they all went out and partied with each other, but for all intents and purposes, they were close. I mean, everybody in that scene at the time, I mean, even look at Return of the Living Dead and some of the Friday the 13th movies that you're just regurgitating the popular cast. And there obviously was like a horror hierarchy in the 80s because some of these people were getting, you know, big Fox budget movies, $20 million movies, you know, and then you have the lower rank that were getting, you know, the two, $3 million movies and just somehow didn't manage to break into the mainstream, which is really interesting with Linnea Quigley because she's just all over the place that she's up there and, you know, massive theater releases. She's in million dollar movies. She's in $200 movies and she's just working. She worked, I think, harder than... Yeah, I I think she worked harder than just about anybody else in her era then and now, that she just is a nonstop performer. And her product, what is always amazing about Linnea Quigley, is it's it's never really bad. It's never... Even if the movie's god-awful, you end up watching... She's always good. Yeah, you end up focusing on Linnea because her mannerisms, how she delivers her lines. Uh, In one of the movies we're getting to tonight, she has to wear prosthetic teeth, and it's just her delivery is hysterical. And I don't think it's an intentionally hysterical scene where she's, you know, performing in this manner. It's just how she acts. She's a great actress. Linnea was, I think to me, uh, probably my first, like, hardcore film crush that, you know, Return of the Living Dead, of course, everybody really, really liked trash. But Vice Academy, it was just funny. Well, I mean, if you grew up in the 80s, you probably had at least a few of your first sexual experiences in your own mind with these women at one point or another. I mean, this is what you watched. So I'm sure you've had plenty of fantasies about them over the years. So you you came to at least know the idea of them very well. And there definitely is, like, a level of nudity to all of them. Like, Michelle Bauer got naked a lot more than everybody else. I think Brink's probably second most naked than Linnea. Yeah, well, I mean, Brink did a lot of body double work for years and years and years. She didn't really start showing up as an actress until you got into... Let's go ahead and start talking about one of her first films. Um, And this film was made by Dave Dakota, and he also did this back-to-back with another film. They're both very similar films. Well, let's first talk about uh, Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Ball Rama. It's a goofy fucking movie at best. I mean, it's it's fun as shit. And what makes it really interesting is just, like, the plot itself is not very... There's a, a like, thousand-year-old imp whatever the fuck you want to call it, like an imp, a goblin. Some Which was the original sheep. title of the movie, and I, I just can't help but feel... It, what what a point were you working with the imp that somebody suggested, you know what, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama just has a better ring to it. I think that'll fit perfectly on a poster. That's Let's do that. Baby. That's a good market. It's a great title, but for all intents and purposes, the movie's just about... Uh, uh, an imp, a very cheeky imp, a very a pimp imp, as Joe Bob Briggs calls it. Well, it's it's about um, a sorority hazing that goes to a bowling alley to steal a trophy, and inside that trophy is a a genie imp that gives voice. Sort of, 
Hmm? It's voiced by the amazing Dookie Flyswatter, which I realize that this episode also serves as the Dookie Flyswatter special. Because he's, he's going to watch you these as well. <laughs> he's going to appear a lot, and I'm going to make note of him absolutely every time because I think he's fucking amazing. He's also the um, the writer of Blood Diner. He was a very big part of that 80s B scene going on in Hollywood at the time. That it's also a was hardcore like punker. beach scene to me anyway. That's what it feels like. It just feels very like skate, very yeah. skateboard punk era. Sorority Babes is definitely a California movie because it's a California cast, California director, everything about it's California, and it like uh, even Dookie, he was a Venice punk. I mean, he's in a fucking punk band, man. Haunted Garage. Yeah, which does a soundtrack for another movie that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But sorority babes, like the um, Brink plays a sorority girl who is going through, you know, the hazing ritual, and so does Michelle. But Linnea Quigley shows up. Such a as long spanking scene. The badass biker chick who's. Spider! To steal quarters out of fucking video games. I don't know what her plan really was and how much money she's going to make from robbing the bowling alley, but she had a definitive plan why she's there. But she's very tough, very smart in this film. It's What's a your very name? Role for her personally. Spider. What's your real name? No parent would name their kid Spider. That is my real name. It's got some amazing dialogue. Another great line of dialogue. What is this? The Midnight Went Bowling League. During the scene you're discussing, I think Linnea turns and says, I'm robbing the place. So you've got a lot of one-liners with the the very California Linnea Quigley sounding voice. Very Valley Girl in this movie. And this is a prime example for, for me anyway of Linnea's use of comic timing. And I think she's kind of brilliant at it at times like with this and in Vice Academy she knows just how to deliver her lines in just the right sequence and time compared to everyone else where it like she really stands out in this role you've got the scene with Buck Flowers that's just fall over hysterical of her trying to get through to this deaf guy and him reciting back exactly what she's saying to him without knowing it and Linnea Quigley's a gem in this but everybody all together the the movie is just ridiculous because they break open the, uh, the bowling trophy and the imp comes out and Dookie Flyswatter does this ridiculous Isaac Hayes sounding black guy pimp voice and which it's, is pretty racist by today's standards actually y- yeah it's, it's mildly offensive but uh, it's still somewhat entertaining you've got uh, Debbie Still I can't it wasn't her name she's called something else she's dead but Debbie Still plays the lead she plays Babs I can't remember what else she was in um god was she Oh, what else did she end up in? I can't remember. She started another one of these films, though. Oh, her her first major film was something big, and it's it's leaving my mind. But she plays the um, lead of the sorority, and she survives most of the movie until everybody eventually, because it transforms from a, a weird pimp imp movie to a zombie movie, and now they're fighting for survival. And Linnea Quigley has become the ultimate hero badass with this kind of cool reversal of the weaker male having to survive with her. So it's a cool gender swap. One of the kids from one of the Friday the 13th. Streets. Yeah. I didn't know that for years either. I like saw the name, didn't put two and two together. I'm like, oh, that's Rick from Nightmare 4. He just has a dumb haircut in this film and wearing stupid glasses. I had no idea. Looks like the same guy. Yeah, it says uh, he's from Nightmare 4. He, play, he was uh, Alice's kid. brother. But, um,. I'd say what's kind of interesting is when Brink and Michelle are playing the sorority girls, they don't really have much to do. Slumber Party Massacre. Ha! Robin still was in fucking Slumber Party Massacre. 
Oh, along with Brink Stevens. Um, but there's I not much first films for both of them, truly. I mean, well, first actual, like, performing acting roles outside of body double work. And um, when they do get taken over by the imp and they become whatever the fuck, like, you know, like um, Taffy gets pulled to death. And uh, what's Michelle's name in the movie? I can't remember. I'm not very... Uh, Coaching on my titles or names. Michelle Bauer was Lisa. Andrus Jones was Calvin. Robin Stills was Bab. Uh, Hal Halvins appears in this movie. He comes. Uh, he'll appear again uh, later. And, and weirdly, never had a massive acting career. But I absolutely love Hal Halvins. He was Jimmy. He's the funny fat guy in everything. Well, into yeah, and he, again, another actor that reappears in another one of these like films. Um, yeah, like only these two movies. I, I've really never seen him in a lot more, which is unfortunate because Hal Halvins is pretty hysterical. That he's he had that Chris Farley, John Belushi, funny fat guy. I hate just saying it that way, but that's really what it was. He was the obnoxious comic relief fat guy, but it worked, and he had a lot of talent. Apparently, he would not show his own ass in a certain movie we're going to be talking about later. Weird place to draw the line, but well, like when. Michelle and Brink are actually able to flex their like comic timing later when they're not really playing the sorority girls and they get to kind of vamp it up a little bit. They get way more interesting throughout the film. And I think that's kind of a key to a lot of the uh, performances they give. Like, as far as just sex appeal, it seems as though they're not particularly interested in doing what they're doing, but when they give them something to do, like something comical or fun to do, they really start to shine in the films. And one of the movies we'll be talking about here in a second, they really all very much shine, and it's probably a movie that's lacking plot more than anything, but the three of these women really make the film interesting to watch. I think one of my favorite things about Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolarama, outside of an incredibly epic title and a very cool cast, is just how it plays out. It starts as just this kind of goofy, you know, 80s beer stoner comedy. It's where the bubblegum horror kind of comes in because it really relates to that itself, 80s teenagers. They're watching late-night zombie movies and drinking beer and just hanging out. Then it moves into the kind of cheeky sorority aspect, which is your up-all-night movies. It just encompasses kind of everything. A lot of different genres at once. Yeah, you've got like fun, dumb college humor, high school humor, stoner humor, fart jokes. You've just got everything uh, from the '80s. It's just very dated, and if you're in, if you're into that sort of thing, it's just got it's got the Shermer Illinois feeling on top of tits, ass, spanking, uh, gratuitous showering scenes. Uh, it's it's got everything that you might want. It's got a demon little imp, obviously Charles Band because. This was what this is a full moon picture, I believe. Somewhat. So you, I mean, it was um, it was a Dakota film that Charles Band marked it under another. It wasn't really under the Empire label, but Charles Band did produce it. I can't remember what the label was though. It was like um, mm, he made a few movies like Slave Girls from Beyond Infinity. Was it, I thought it was label. like Full Moon something that it was called like Full Moon Incorporated or something like that. That it had nah, full yeah. title. But. Yeah, it was something else. I can't remember exactly what the the title was. I remember. What seeing it and it's very orange and red is what the company logo looked like but it was a fucking Charles Band company regardless yeah it's um, got a little rubber monster in it so obviously it's Charles Band 
almost. But um, again, Charles Band's a genius marketer more than anything, or he used to be. Um, Buck Flowers is in the movie, for Christ's sakes. How could it go wrong with Buck Flowers in it? But to probably to sum up sorority base more than anything, you need to quill an ale quickly from this movie. Yes, it's very stupid. And that's what's amazing about it. It's very stupid. But and it's, it's one hell of a ride. From, from start to finish, I have no problem. This is not one of those I'm going to take a smoke break movies. This is always something I watch gleefully and can never get enough of. And that's just sort of Dave Dakota. Uh, well, I guess 80s At Dave times. At times, yeah. Dave Dakota. That's the thing. It's like he has a lot of talent sometimes, and sometimes is that just to make money. In the um, 80s, Dave Dakota was a shining example of the Roger Corman film school of just fucking make something man and he did what's really interesting is i remember um last year when joe bob was running the marathon and he played this film i left um because i was over at my friend's house we were all watching it together and i left during the prowler and i didn't really start the marathon again when i got home and when i did i was like i wonder what movie's showing holy shit slime ball or uh slime ball bowl or amazon are you serious this is what they're going with next and i sat there and watched it and just enjoyed every minute of it it was like four o'clock in the morning i was like fuck it i'll stay up and watch this i haven't seen this in forever and yeah kind of the key to a film like this is no matter how stupid it is no matter how cheap it is no matter how bad it gets at times it's so much fun to watch and a lot of that is due to the performances of these three women specifically actually all three of them combined together is really what makes the movie and then you've got um robin rochelle as babs on top of it that is what she was billed as robin still robin rochelle Uh, babs is one of my favorite characters in the movie just because of the drive just bitch character but uh, at the same time you were talking about the joe bob marathon i had just had surgery about three days beforehand and this did come out at like four in the morning and i was struggling through it because i needed to take my painkillers and uh i i just couldn't i was enjoying it so much i hadn't seen it in about 10 years that i had to uh, endure the pain until finally i could nod off from oxycodone induced I don't know paralysis. What do you call it? <laughs> uh, a drug binge, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Oh, they cut an organ out of me, so it wasn't like I was Charlie Sheen on the weekend. I was just trying not to suffer through the uh, massive hole that had been put in my stomach. So you know, I got to get out of jail free card. And um, just moving on here a little bit around. Where are we moving time, to? Where, let's, well, let's around the same time, Dakota like teamed up with uh, Kenneth Hall, Cleve Hall's brother, and they made a little movie called Nightmare Sisters, which is just quintessential scream queen of that era. Which is funny, in Slimeball Babes, they make a reference to, they're not zombies, it's succubuses at the very beginning of the movie while they're watching TV, and the follow-up movie he made is about succubuses. Succubuses. (laughs) Um, So it's it's a cool little reference of how deeply these guys were all working together. I don't know if Cleve Hall had anything to do with this. I don't think he did special effects. Uh, well, I'm sure Cleve somehow was involved in behind the scenes a little bit, just uh, for what he was doing at the time. He, he, at least his brother's involved, so he at least had knowledge of it. Cleve um, has been credited, from my knowledge, as like 20 different things, and sometimes they're very ridiculous horror names. Sometimes they're just normal people names. A lot of these directors did that, too. A lot of the same guys were working behind the scenes on this movie and just didn't want to say, like, oh, yeah, I, I did this. That was helping my buddy out. So they just went by, you know, Mike Joe. Mike well, Joe, why would two first names? What the fuck? 
exactly of this era when um, you had a very small crew. You might have a ten-person crew with like six or seven cast members. Well, yeah. Let's look at Slimeball. It's supposed to be a sorority, and there's like three of them. But when you have that many people involved, you would honestly go back and fake your credits. I mean, like Dakota probably did editing. He probably did all these. So you just made up a bunch of fake names to secure credits to make it look like a bigger production than it actually was. And I can tell you Nightmare Sisters did not have a huge production. Almost barely anybody worked on this film. At you know who worked on this film? Who? He flies butter. Dookie Flyswatter, of course, he stars in it as well uh, he, as the uh, the medium at the beginning who uh, raises the succubus. Um, and and he's always interesting. Later. To me, he's always interesting, but uh, as far as he goes, I will always remember him as Mengele from Surf Nazis Must Die. That's his um, like ultimate role for me personally. So the, the very top of the Dookie Flyswatter appearances. I'm a very big fan of him in another movie we're going to be talking about later tonight. But we'll get to that later. But um, Nightmare it's Sisters late. is paper-fucking-thin on plot. There is almost no plot to be had whatsoever. Um, and it's about three sorority girls from the Triada Pie house. Huh? Jokes. And um, these dorks who are trying to date them. And Linnea has false teeth. Uh, they're Rapist dorks, too. Weep. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a dork sorority, and, like, the dudes don't even want to go because, uh, yeah, they've got that hot. This is before the era of fat suits, and even if there were fat suits, Nightmare Sisters didn't have a budget for it. So Michelle Bowers, she's just wearing, like, a ski suit with a couple shirts fluffed into it, and she didn't wash yeah. her hair. So, she's yeah. supposed to be overweight, and, I, yeah, you don't really buy it too much. They give but, Brink a pair of dirty glasses, and her hair hasn't been washed in a while, and Linnea just got really bad prop teeth that she can't speak in very well and I find it hysterical like within the first five minutes of watching this movie they're all three sitting on the couch and somebody comes back from a fucking raffle sale a pawn shop a I don't know something a second hand store and they're going sale yeah they're going through all this weird stuff she finds in the box and you're introduced to these three characters and you've got Linnea on one end just dorking it up just being a complete timing man yeah just absolutely and you end up again this is what I was referencing earlier we end up watching Linnea over everybody else just because her mannerisms and body movement just is naturally funny and you can't help but pull your eyes to her because she's moving and she's just more interactive than the other two out of the scream queens and it just comes down to because Linnea quickly is a badass but well, I mean, for me, like... They're all badasses, but Linnea Quigley, she's the baddest of the asses. But, like, Brink Stevens' performance in this I find particularly interesting because she plays dork very well. I think it's very something very close to her heart. But the one thing that sticks me out with Brink Stevens is this movie transcends... It. it what did I say earlier? It, it pulls no punches. It's a very inappropriate humor-based movie. You've got some bestiality jokes, a whole Brink Stevens... Bunch of really uh, yeah, the Brink Stevens pedophilia jokes. That one, you know, really bothered. That it didn't so much bother me as it just made me very uncomfortable because Brink Stevens, after well, we've not gotten to that point, but eventually she appears uh, dressed as a little girl to seduce some college guys, and that's kind of creepy. But well, the, yeah, that was before people actually thought about these things. Oh, it's sexy. You're doing a schoolgirl thing. Yeah, but if you think but the conditions of how you thing. got there, that's well, I mean, the she's got the one. lollipop and all that shit. I yeah, mean, she's doing like a five-year-old girl. A schoolgirl, at least, would be like a teenager. That's still not acceptable. This is like 
infant pedophilia jokes to me. So that was just kind of like, woo, but already this is way after a bestiality joke. The word fag is used multiple times. A lot of just uh, 80s bro homo jokes are floating throughout the beginning of the movie. And then it's just hardcore nudity. This is like a Skinamax amount of nudity right here. This is a you're very surprised to see Fred Olin Ray had nothing to do with this movie amount of nudity. Like that is how much nudity is in it. Well, I mean, basically what happens is they do a seance with a crystal ball and a succubus possesses them all and they... But you missed the best show point. up topless. It's not just a succubus. It's a succubus that turns the girls into ultra horny sluts that have to suck the soul through the dick and then the body turns into poof, ash. So you've got a real twist here. I mean, that... That's drives, a twist. I that's, call that a twist. That's a home run of a story. That's like a Hemingway. I, I, this has better dialogue than a Tarantino movie and more action than a Star Wars flick. Nightmare Sisters is what it's all about. This is a five-star movie. Well, I mean, I would never call this a five-star movie, but I do enjoy it as a fun... We've already established that I'm wet-brained, so... Um, but the amazing transition of and you can really see their acting chops of these three women when they transition from these goofball characters they're playing and then all of a sudden they're playing sultry vixens and like that trans like especially for like Brink Stevens I think like that transformation is just amazing because she all of a sudden is this very sexual creature and she's no longer they've got her child in the Betty Page child and Michelle Bauer like is doing her thing and being queen of the Amazon and um, then we get to, I think it's a full 20 minutes of them taking a bath together where they play a really bad song about suck up my Jimmy Dean. I don't remember the exact song or the lyrics. I can't understand them, but it's something Jimmy it's, Dean. That it's an amazing, play. amazing, amazing blowjob song. But what's funny is in the USA Up All Night version of this, they had a reshot scene of the girls like playing with big inflated balloons and they were all in like negligees just throwing balloons up in the air. So the whole bathtub scene, and it is ridiculously long of them just scrubbing each other. <laughs> yeah, there's, and that's a lot of of the movie like the initial nude scene where they all first appear after the seance of the three girls standing against the three guys they're nude now for some reason it's a good like five minutes of just standing there naked just pure nakedness yeah and like the weird thing about the reshot because I've seen both versions I saw this in USA up all night the footage of uh, they shot for the TV version does not match it does not match at all it's like different. it's like three years later too yeah it's they look completely different and like there's like um well, they keep well, I, cutting back to the dudes and what they're saying. Like, they, they keep saying stuff like, look at all those bubbles in reference to a bubble bath. But the reshot scene is them standing there in lingerie blowing bubbles. So they had to, like, kind of key the new footage around what the old footage was referencing. So it's it's a real mess, but it's kind of really interesting when you see it in this this capacity. Yeah, because I think Slimeball was shot in nine days and Nightmare Sisters was shot in, like, four days on the extras from that. And so they did those back-to-back later. Later on, like two or three years later, they shot the TV scenes. I mean, and really, like, 
but I mean, the bathtub scene is there's a reason for it. It's, it's part of the script because when you <laughs> unfortunately all over your tits, you have to take a bath. Yeah, unfortunately, it is very quintessential to the plot. Like the movie would not be the same thing if there wasn't a 20 minute all nude bath scene. But what is somewhat remarkable is all three of these ladies appear nude and almost the entirety of this movie, which I I would imagine is incredibly strenuous to just constantly be in a crowded room completely naked and having to still perform a role like they do. It does not inhibit their performances whatsoever that they happen to be naked, which takes a lot more courage than I think most people are capable people. What most people are capable of, uh, you know, doing just being able to actually perform without that getting in the way. And I really, honestly, in this movie, what I really like more than anything is the characters. I like the characters of the girls before they become vixens. I like the characters of the boys um, being these nerds because they actually do have a lot of funny jokes. Um, they all have their own different personalities. It's a film that stars Richard um, Gabi. I can never pronounce his last name. Gabi? Gabi? I, I don't know. He worked a lot in the 80s and 90s. He became a director. He made a movie called uh, Virgin High. The sequel I think it's Richard Gabay. Gabay, yeah, I can never I remember how to pronounce yeah. his name. He's in Demon Wind as well. He's one of the characters in Demon Wind. I always really enjoyed his films. Um, he had a band called The Checks in the, the 80s and 90s as well. I, I became quite the fan of him uh, in the 80s, but this film is nothing but fun. I mean, you, it has some a lot of objectionable things in it, especially in today's culture, but I'm willing to let a lot of it pass because no one is taking any of this seriously. Yeah, and I like, absolutely love Jim Culver as the exorcist parent. Oh, he's great. <laughs> From Hot Goblin, Jim Culver. Of course I got no credit for it. I didn't even get invited to the premiere. There's a lot of great one-liners, and that's something, too, that is sort of quintessential to these three as Scream Queens is all of their movies are incredibly quotable and you know most people remember Linnea and some of her quotes from Return of the Living Dead and it's just how she delivers her lines she managed to have that valley girl voice perfectly which is kind of funny because I don't think she's from California is she? No she's from Davenport Iowa Iowa. Yeah, so she really got the California thing, and that's, again, this is a very California movie. Uh, uh, let's be honest. All the movies that we're talking about tonight are really California movies. <laughs> I mean, in, not especially only, at that time period. Yeah, this is not only the Dookie Flyswatter special, the Scream Queen Appreciation special, it's the Southern California L.A. scene special. Yeah, it's all special. I, these are all people who were just trying to work and trying to make a living in film. They didn't care what capacity. They would have loved to do giant budget movies, but they can't do that. Fine, fuck it, I'll do this. Well, I mean, and talking about the girls, this. you know, you, we brought up Brink Stevens and her start that, you know, she was working on, and I just like to think, you know, a dolphin language probably. Linnea Quigley started with Jack LaLanne, that she was early on into fitness, way before the trends of being a vegetarian and vegan were popular as they are now are becoming you know kind of hipsterdom people just jumping on the bandwagon she's been a hardcore PETA supporter very very vocal in the politics of animal rights and uh, being generally healthy and then you've got Michelle as you mentioned that she started with was it Hustler? Oh, Penthouse. Penthouse. So she started with Penthouse, and then I knew she moved into the uh, the Playboy production company that they were putting out, like, soft score, softcore nudie cuties and skin flicks. Not, like, hardcore porns. I mean, I know well, she it, performed. She did a couple of hardcore performances, but, uh, you know, that's... But she was never... Matter. 
like she was in um, like two or three porn films, but she never did any of the actual pornography. She yeah, she's had not a body like, double. Like Sasha Gray porn. Like Sasha Gray does horror films now, and it's neither here nor there that she was a, a performer in porns beforehand, but she did some hardcore fucking porn before she transgressed into becoming This a was like actress. 70s, early 80s story porn where you actually had like the Italian things Italian. going on in between the sex. Yes, it wasn't just all straight up hardcore. Even sitting on my desk, I have technically a hardcore porn that's got one hell of a story. Roger Watkins' Corruption. It's got a lot of ass fucking. It's a Jamie Gillis movie, so there is a lot of fucking doggy style, gratuitous, just slapping dirty organs, but it's an alright movie. It's almost like, I know this is a hard thing to say in today's political climate, but it's almost innocent fun for as overly sexual as things are, but it's just, all I see is a bunch of people having a good time putting out an interesting like, fun product. I don't like try to ascribe any sort of racist or sexist attitudes to it, because I don't think any of that was a t- intention. Or a product of its time. It was, I think it's just good fun, good dirty fun, basically. Well, it's something like an American pie movie for a product of its time yes you know it might in this era and this climate be somewhat offensive not somewhat it could be very misconstrued and be very offensive and very homophobic it's very misogynistic but for its time period the entire purpose obviously is exploitation and obviously exploiting the female body because the three lead performers are constantly nude and that's what the the entire movie basically (laughs) well you even got from uh, I believe Michelle and Brink full body nudity throughout the film so it's what the movie sold on but at the same time it's just a college high school level humor movie that's its point yeah and it's I mean there's nothing to be taken seriously about this but again getting back to their comic timing is what really sells this film is everyone's comic timing from all the performers I hate comparing them down to Jim Culver what well I hate comparing them to the three stooges but between the three scream queens you do have that just like ballet level of precision of them bouncing off each other and when all three of them appear they just naturally for one I think they're probably friends so you have that working in real life being comfortable knowing somebody but they just bounce off each other so well it's not like it's slapstick or somebody dumb and somebody's fat just a comparison and the notation of how you know the stooges even with uh shemp managed to it, it was like a very anxiety writing ballet as to where with the three scream queens the holy trinity of scream queens it's more of just them taking notes from each other as people and they they recognize it and bounce off each other like the beginning of this movie where they're all on the couch michelle actually looks at linnea with that be nice expression and it's it's real they despite being dorky and the whole purpose being over that there's this like three's company background music that plays throughout this entire movie three's company is a perfect example of what the style of humor is we're working with too and most yeah. of it seems very improv like a lot of the dialogue just seems like they're just making it up as they go well and it was shot like four days i think at um dakota's apartment so i mean they're working with what they had and they turned out an interesting product that I watched numerous times uh, in the early 90s for, you know, scientific purposes. Yeah, sexual scientific purposes. It's for the betterment of mankind. My experience in, my, in sex. I had sexually, sexual experiments going on at that point in my life. And the first time I Alexander Nash fucked a pumpkin was to this very same movie. <laughs> 
shut up. Speaking of fucking a pumpkin. from swilling beer? Are you a massive substance abuser who also loves breakfast food? Can't afford cocaine to lose weight? Burial's low-cal! It's what's for breakfast. Burial's the beer for breakfast you can eat and get shit-faced on. Burial's now made without formaldehyde. Not advised consume of pregnant, nursing, driving, living, breathing, or any other reason whatsoever. Burials not applicable for sale in Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Washington State, West Virginia, and Wyoming. <laughs> called Jacko, which does star Linnea Quigley and kind of brings Stevens, kind of. Um, this movie is a goddamn disaster. You kind of got a lot of other people in this movie, too, though. Well, not really. I mean, you got Cameron Mitchell and John Carradine. We'll get into them here in a second. From beyond the grave. Movie at all. And Linnea Quigley shows up, and her first scene in this film is like a five-minute nude shower scene and this is like 1995 and it's odd to me that I, I think I could be completely wrong about this because she's playing a babysitter of a kid in this film and I think they're trying to portray her as maybe a teenager or a college student and she's in her like 30s at this point and she does well, not according look like to a the, teenager according to the greatest commentary track I've ever heard in my entire life the director Steve Latshaw didn't feel the scene was appropriate for the movie and um, the great Fred Olin Ray who was one of the story writers for this and one of the producers apparently forced him to having it into the movie because people that watch Linnea Quigley movies want to see Linnea Quigley news just assume yeah that's the scene is coming that's Fred Olin Ray's assessment but uh, the commentary track for this movie is absolute solid gold well, just a brief plot description. It's about a ancient demon who is like a scarecrow with a pumpkin head and a scythe, and he kills people, and the only person who can take him out is this little kid. And it's a cheap-ass movie. It feels like it was a made-for-TV movie. It's somewhat um, family-friendly until yeah. the gratuitous annuity with Linnea Quigley at the, the mid-part, like 20 minutes into the movie, and then uh, a lot of violence. There is some violence. Well, it's billed as starring... Um, Linnea Quigley, John Carradine, and um, Cameron Mitchell. That's and a lot. John Carradine's scene, I mean, the movie came out in 1995, and he had died in, like, 1987. Yeah, his so scene is as brief years. as his appearance in uh, Tentacle. He doesn't even have, like, 
dialogue. It's just some dude dubbing a voice that doesn't even really sound like John Carradine. It's literally just like 16 millimeter footage of a close up of his face of him in a robe that Fred Along Ray had laying around. But I can advertise him as being in this film and I got a star, goddammit, so we're using it. And Cameron Mitchell's footage is him as like a horror host on the TV that this kid is watching. And that footage is not, it's from um, Demon Cop, for Christ's sakes. It's from a completely different film. It's not even just unused footage that we shot of John Carradine. This is for a different movie completely. And the same thing with Brink Stevens' footage is just her running around in a graveyard shot independently for nothing. So a lot of this movie is just odds and ends that were thrown around to say, well, we got Brink Stevens in this movie. Well, I bought some footage of Brink Stevens to stick in this movie of her being in an, a completely like um, nonsensical film on television that has nothing to do with the plot of this. Same thing with Cameron Mitchell. Well, as Steve Latshaw proudly says, they did the best they could with what Fred Olin Ray gave them. Fred Olin Ray apparently is somewhat villainized for this movie, but uh, I, I will always kiss Fred Olin Ray's ass. That guy is a hero to me just because he gets everything done. He is unstoppable. There will be will end of the world Fred Olin Ray and cockroaches after the atomic blast kills everybody. Well, don't he call him a cockroach, hey? Well, he's not a cockroach. Um, he's unstoppable, you know, because cockroaches can't be stopped, but it, it's it's a weak comparison. I apologize, Fred Olin Ray. I feel you have to call him by his entire name. It's it's not Fred, yeah, Fred Olin Ray. Yeah, all one well, thing, like, Fred Olin Ray. What I appreciate about Fred Olin Ray is the same thing with Dave Dakota, is like, he's still working. He's still making films to this day. He, it's it it's a, a blast. I don't even want to list things out, but it's just a blast to go to IMDb, type in Fred Olin Ray, and just look from the most recent 2019 and just continuously go through his credits as a director. I don't know how many he totally has. It's got to be a, a mind-numbing amount. And like Dave Dakota, these guys just... I know Dave Dakota's made well over 100 movies as is Fred Olin Ray. They just work every single day. I respect you for what you've been able to do in this industry. Is basically been able to stay somewhat relevant and make a career out of it up until this day. Again, you um, know, coming from that Roger Corman film school sort of thing, he's one of those guys that took an idea, took how you did things, and just never stopped. And, you know, I, I've heard him say before that he just constantly was looking for work, and what always paid off was directing. So that's just he. He's one of these freaks that has this ability to just get all these people corralled into one place to listen to him and to get it fucking done no matter what like one of the movies we'll talk about later on is directed by Fred Olin Ray and if it looks familiar to you it's because it's the entire fucking set from Vamp like he just knew how to use things he knew how to get things done in a business that you have to know how to get things done he's a uh, it's, we gotta do a whole Fred Olin Ray thing someday but he is a unique character and not just horror history but I think he's an incredibly important well, even piece down of mill, to the you know? footage is like I've got this I can use it and I can advertise off of it so that's what I'm gonna do yeah and, and then you're such a mark point. of someone who knows how to make money in this industry well you're such a point past um, Carradine being dead too that at this point it's almost fresh 
frivolous. It's like, you know, I'm never going to get a chance to use it. So let's use it. Fuck it. Why not? And it worked. It, it worked successfully for what you're trying to do. And it, I don't know exactly what you were trying to do with this movie. It's not bad. It's it's not like it's unwatchable bad. bad. Well, I mean, it's a bad movie. And it's pretty unwatchable. Yeah, but we make an entire like sucks. we've we've done a decade career of talking about questionable movies, and I really don't give this one a lot of hate. I mean, the commentary alone is worth buying. This, this product is fun because it's like the director and Fred Holland Ray shit talking each other the entire time and getting pissed off. Well, the director getting pissed off at Fred more than anything. Who really but, uh, isn't that bad? I mean, it's Fred Olin Ray, so you gotta... He's a very witty guy. He's also a comedian and a wrestler. He's done it all. He's an astronaut. He actually was the uh, 24th president of the United States. Fred Olin Ray's done everything. He's Lincoln. Um, no, that was the 15th president. With, um... I don't know my presence well, Hank. But in Jacko... God, is it just a sloppy product that they were putting together to sell a box? They were selling a poster of this film, and that's really what they were doing. And they made money off of it. They sold a lot of units in the video store days. And this is for, I mean, we should have probably really talk about this one last, but... Um, yeah, I was uh, wondering your direction, because you started with, you know, this is one of Dave Dakota's first movies. You brought up Pumpkin's fucking asshole that I was obligated to segue into well, it. Well, you went in at the beginning with, you know, this is one of Dave Dakota's first movies, and we started right in the mid-80s instead of starting in the, uh, the early 80s, but it doesn't matter. We're, we're all around. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, think... Well, we got the connections of the actresses that really matter here because you somewhat kind of have Brink Stevens and Linnea Quigley, though they unfortunately share no screen time, and that's what makes the magic is when you get these talents together. And But on their own, I mean, because we've got... This is mostly a Linnea movie, and we'll be honest here, we left out things like Return of the Living Dead because that's a wad we're not going to shoot yet. Now, we're uh, mostly talking about the mid-'80s, like, you know, the Scream Queen era. We're not talking about so much of, like, well, this is probably her best picture that doesn't matter this is like these are the ones that are like really are showcasing them as actresses and being top billed stars in the film and yeah, Linnea manages to be top billed in I think almost all of these that that was that's a big selling point is if you can get Linnea Quigley you have you've at least if you can even just get her for one scene you know you've got a scene you know out of your whole movie you manage to get a scene What's weird about Jacko, though, is this is kind of the end of the Scream Queen era of, you know, of the Linnea Quigley era, because it's 95, and people aren't really going towards the same product quite as much. It's kind of the swan song of the uh, taking her clothes off, being the Scream Queen. Being so you're actually getting into star. the post-Scream Queen, like, neo-slasher Scream era here, where it's now yes. referencing these Scream Queens through other characters that are in their 30s playing 16-year-olds. And this film is just very kind of poorly made. It had a concept and a poster, and that's what they're really... But Steve Latshaw tried, damn it. He tried with what he was given. But probably the best scene in this film is um, there's a very conservative couple that Jacko is going after and killing. He kills this woman's husband, and she has been having this five-minute scene of making fucking toast. Um, And she sees Jacko, and Jacko's coming forward, and she keeps screaming, I got to get a weapon. I got to get a weapon. She goes to the kitchen, grabs 
grabs a knife, I believe, which is a butter knife, and slips and accidentally sticks it in the toaster and electrocutes herself. So that's a really kind of interesting scene in the film of Jacko not even getting the kill of this dumbass somehow accidentally stabbing a live toaster and killing herself through electrocution, um, which I, I found fairly humorous. But as far as, like, even Linnea's performance in this film, I, it doesn't seem like she's into it as much. I mean, she's being professional, most definitely. I'm not saying she just didn't give a shit. What I'm saying is, it's like, eh, there's no real reason for her to be here other than Fred and Ray wanted her to take her clothes off for that one scene. Let's move on. Um, and so Fred I, knew, probably reading the screenplay, that something had to sell this movie, and Linnea, she sells. And she always sold in that era. She continued to sell. Shit, look at some point. of her stuff now, though. I mean, a lot of her more recent movies are just scenes because people, that's what you want. You know, like I just said, Linnea makes a scene. So people go out of their way for their indie products, and a lot of their budget is like, we got a day with Linnea Quigley, and that's what, you know, is top build still. Two seconds in a movie, still at the very beginning, Linnea Quigley, because it's what people want. People want to, especially now, I feel see her and see her talent and see her chops and that's it's impressive again like I said this at the beginning of the show but it's impressive to be able to see these through the three trinity of scream queens coming back and being able to actually get roles that don't involve them being nude for 45 minutes like it's nice being able to see Brink Stevens give be given a full fucking role for once which a lot of the times like in Slimeball uh, Slimeball Polarama they, they are full roles they do feature a great deal of nudity um a sorority movie again they're great roles it's just constantly you're focused on the sexualization and the exploitation of the female body per se well most certainly because they're completely nude throughout the entire movie and the guy's dicks aren't flapping around so you're exploiting tits pretty much at this point but seeing it now being able to get like a role being able to see them perform and that not be the focal point is kind of fun you know you actually don't have to judge things on well I really like that coffin seat in Return of Living dead where she does the tombstone dance i know you do it's a great scene but what about mark venturini's amazing performance he was pretty good rest in peace mark venturini we promised not to talk about return of the living dead tonight we promised hank i have to say rest in peace mark venturini every six episodes and saying my contract that's very obvious um but this is definitely the end of that era and just not a good film whatsoever but i just kind of wanted to throw it in there just to talk about a little bit where where these performances went and end up going and then eventually where they're at now is working a lot with dave dakota and just being in these really cheap movies they are still the stars of these films but it's just a different kind of a different kind of product that they're putting out at this point uh, this is more of like the Baywatch Nights era of low budget B movie horror it wasn't really that good and what's funny is out of all the movies got real lazy with this kind of shit well out of all the movies you decided to include tonight this is the hardest to find funnily enough I think your options are pretty much buy it on DVD and it's gonna be more than 20 bucks 
watch it in Spanish on YouTube. It's there right now. It's I'll just be, as good in Spanish, trust me. To be completely honest with you, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but just moving on from this one, because it's it's a very small part of this. I just wanted to kind of bring it up because it has a couple of screen queens in it. We're going to talk about uh, another Fred Olin Ray film, uh, which is Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, which is the height of this kind of screen queen era. And or just, I, I believe in the UK, it was just called Hollywood Hookers, which I also really like as a title. And feel would be a kick-ass glam metal band name, the Hollywood Hookers. It just has a good ring to it. Well, I, we I don't want this a movie. power tool in the title because that's imitatable violence, for Christ's sakes. I mean, that's that's really what, why they took it out of the, the title, because you couldn't get a chainsaw. Kissing the big old ass of Fred Olin Ray. It's Fred Olin Ray that made this. Even the opening credits, if you pay attention and watch the just dark level of sarcasm and insult toward the other writers and just Fred Olin Ray, that's him. He is a sad Sassy son of a bitch, and it's this movie is just sassy. It's great. Well, I mean, the film in itself is he decided to go into like a detective noir story about looking for runaway girls who joined a Jay Richardson cult in the yes. performance of his life. The greatest John Henry Richardson, Jay Richardson as Jack Chandler is this is the, the moneymaker for this well, movie. He plays the same role in every film. He does the same inflection in his voice. He was almost like he was. Has he died yet? 50s actor. I don't think so. I think Has he still died of lung cancer? Like, I have never seen the man without a lit cigarette in his hand, which many people can say for me, unfortunately, also. But then again, I am the sixth tank. But this movie is just like, it's really fucking stupid. It's a really dumb film in itself, but I think it's fun overall, and it's got that Fred Olin Ray license of humor to it. And it's really based around, he came up with the title of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. Now, what would that be? And well, Gunnar Hansen. Story by Gunnar Hansen. Yeah, Gunnar Hansen <laughs> came up with the concept of this. And in the opening credits that I was referring to a little while ago, uh, it's it's an assumed name. It's one of the really silly names, something about butchering or killing. That's Gunnar Hansen's credit. And then it says, rewritten better by Fred Olin Ray. And it's very sassy. I love it. I love oh. the sassiness. But what drives it is the whole movie you're expecting an explanation. And when you get it, it's just one of those jaw-dropping things. Like, did I just watch this for, what, what, 60 minutes now? And this is the explanation? The chainsaw of the gods? But for me, I just applaud it. Like, people love trauma. People love Full Moon and Charles Band movies, and they love it for a certain level of, of goofiness and for a certain level of humor. And this is what I want out of trauma. This is what I want when you say this is a really hysterical, goofy movie, and it turns out to be something like, uh, referencing it again, American Pie, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. It's almost perfect because it just has every over-the-top movie cliche in it. You've got the uh, Humphrey Bogart detective just chain-smoking lucky strikes through the whole movie. Uh, beautiful voiceovers that just are hysterical. What more could you want? And then you've got chainsaw-wielding hookers. It's as good as the succubuses that suck your soul up through your dick. I mean, it's just great. I think you're blowing this movie a little bit much personally because I, when I watch Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, it's an hour and 14 minutes long. It's not a long film. And I was about 45 minutes into it. I was like, this is almost over, isn't it? Is this almost, oh my God, it's still got time left. And it's still 
still a short film. It's just it doesn't really go anywhere. It's the whole central plot is getting to the scene where Linnea Quigley does the dance of the uh, the chainsaws, where she just dances around with some of these power tools and looks you're overstating it. She doesn't even dance sensually. She's somewhat gyrating and shaking her arms from side to side with what I imagine pretty heavy because they look like real chainsaws that aren't on. They're just shooting out smoke. So probably heavy. Then she gets into a chainsaw fight. I'll repeat that. She gets into a chainsaw fight with Michelle Bauer and it's fucking, I think it's uh, Michelle McKellen in this movie, but we know who it is. It's Michelle Bauer, which is awesome. Borderline as good as Phantasm 2, maybe even better than Mandy. All right, that's an overstatement. Now, (laughs) I I just, I don't know. It's not that this even has a special place in my heart because I enjoyed it when I was a teenager. I just enjoyed the hell out of it. I love the the dumb-natured humor is misogynistic in today's modern time, but it's just slap-happy failure humor. The lead character is an absolute doofus, but through his voiceover monologues, he paints himself as being this smooth Sam Spade kind of guy, and it, it just makes me laugh. It's that it it's doesn't medium make me laugh too much. See, to I'm me, sorry, I, it just doesn't. I just find it a relieving level of humor. But again, I guess this is so. This is the Dukey Flyswatter special because guess what? He's, he's in it again. He's in this movie again. This is one of my favorite Dukey Flyswatter performances. Not only is this, he gets a line, does he? He does the really weird performance at the end of the movie with the motor oil where he pours it into the big cup and makes the other hookers drink it and uh, I think that's hysterical he's also the cheesy bartender at the beginning and middle of the movie but I just love Fred Olin Ray and so this is the Scream Queen Dookie Flyswatter Fred Olin Ray appreciation, uh, appreciation well, what episode what does this movie prove more than anything other than the fact that Gunnar Hansen could not act that's he why he wore the mask. His face, but when you give him dialogue he was not that much of an actor and may he rest in peace her very wooden throughout all of his speaking roles in film uh, he gives the same performance here as he does in the film Mosquito um, he was just not a great actor but I still respect the man he was a hell of a poet he was a hell of a writer he just wasn't he I mean he knew he wasn't much of an actor he just did it as a goof for the most part he was more of a writer than anything of of like almost like um uh, like Thoreau type writing he was very interested in things like the environment and nature and things like that but I just don't think it's particularly his bag as being an actor um, he appeared in some very bizarre movies toward the end of his career though a Manson knockoff movie called Gimme Skelter he appeared I believe in murder set pieces some very hardcore 2000s gore stuff well, he was and, in um, what was oh god what was the stupid fucking movie I watched on Netflix because you made me watch it. He's in that shit too. God, that could be anything. I have no clue. Death, um, fuck, I can't Oh, the Death name. House. Yeah, no. Death well, House, he, that he thing. actually he wrote that, and that was his whole idea doing this convention circuit movie with all of his buddies. Then he died, so they put him as an awful tribute hologram. It's a CG hologram. It's a complete mess, but in, in this movie, it's kind of funny too, because you got Jay Richardson acting his act ass off against certain characters, and there's two or three scenes that he's face-to-face with Gunnar Hansen and he's like giving it this just dinner theater out his ass performance sweating bullets just just working his character and Gunnar Hansen just you can see him reading something offset just yeah uh 
and the ancient Egyptian gods were our gods, and we have the chainsaw of the gods. I think it's Michelle Bauer that screams very happily, chainsaw of the gods. And I may be incorrect about this, but I think Fred went to Brink and wanted Brink Stevens to be the uh, the third Hollywood chainsaw-wielding hooker, and she reportedly said, no, my, my mother would kill me if I was in a movie called Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I can't do it. So we don't get Brink Stevens in this. That's unfortunate because she would have been the icing on the cake having all these three because you got to switch a ruin in this. Linnea's not in with them. She's a, a turncoat that you find out midway through. So her whole character interaction with Jay Richardson completely changes between her and Michelle Bauer. So they're being very catty back and forth, which is pretty fun. I mean, they're kind of catty like, and slime ball, but not as good. I would say Michelle Bauer is the standout in this film, like the scene where she takes the John back she's to over the top and puts on the shower cap and starts coating everything in plastic. Covers the Elvis painting. She yeah, has this big Elvis. Funny. Yeah, I get a little carried away sometimes, but that that's hysterical. Putting the Elvis painting. Do you want a shower cap too? And it gets pretty visceral with the uh, simulated blowjobs and the gore is hysterical. That you'll just get, you know, a very busty nude woman wielding this chainsaw and just somebody throwing buckets upon buckets of of caro syrup and food coloring and fake body parts are flying all over the place. It's just okay, not even Mad Magazine. You remember Cracked Magazine? This is Cracked Magazine humor. This is right up there with with just schlock, puke humor. It's hysterical to me. I I love Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. I also love New Wave. fucking goofy. I can tell you that much. But, I mean, it's enjoyable on a B-level sort of sense. I just find it, like, I just can't get into the noir detective story in this because the, the film really didn't have too much of a story. It's like, let's do a lot of narration. We've got, like, three sets. We'll use those. And let's make an hour and 15 minutes. It's plenty of running time so we can sell this on video and let's just get the fuck out of here so wait, you prefer as well you prefer the sorority succubus dick sucking out the soul movie to hollywood chainsaw hookers it's just a lot more fun personally i think so oh, because blasphemy. it focuses more on the women in those films and this one focuses more on um, the detective character which i just don't care about oh, you got a good thing his dialogue is very funny but i don't find it very humorous at all i think it's just kind of terribly cheesy well that's what i i think is funny about it it's like an Andy Kaufman level of humor. It's so bad to me that it comes off funny because it's being taken and delivered so absolutely seriously. But you've got a really good Linnea performance, too, in this one. I still like Slimeball because, you know, she's just a badass. She's the punk heartthrob queen in that movie, and she's a little ditzy in this one, but the character pays off. you got a really funny headbutt scene that was apparently they, they tried several times to get it done and just couldn't, so Jay Richardson just headbutted the shit out of Linnea Quigley. <laughs> But overall, I think this is, a, it's, again, it's another advertising campaign that worked really well. It's a salacious title that you were able to sell a movie on that. Who played Lori? Who was the other Hollywood no chainsaw idea. hooker? I think it was Don Wildsmith, but I'm not sure. She was the, um, Don Wildsmith was Fred Allaway Ray's ex-wife. She's the one in the blonde wig who was in the police station. Oh, yeah. She's also the, the, the runaway she's at the, the very beginning. As well. She's okay. the, the, the female surf Nazi. I don't remember. We'll never know. 
But um, yeah, Hollywood Chainsaw Huggers. It's it's very important to this era, the Scream Queens, because this was like, I mean, it was billing the Scream Queens as, as top build in this film. But overall, I just it's a little too cheap for my, for for my likes personally. Says the guy that likes Winter Beast. It's not cheap. It's Winter just Beast a- is adorable, and this film is not particularly adorable. Well, no, that's what I mean. You, it's not. The, it's because it's too cheap. Because there are a lot of cheaper things out there you like. You just don't like the level of cheese. It's not even so much the level of cheese. It's just it's, it's pretty much the level of writing of just this detective character. I just I'll, don't I'll find give you that this. Interesting. It is a little tacky. The detective character is a bit of a tacky character. It's too old school. That's like I mean that's like my father's generation. Yeah, and you you historically don't enjoy detective stuff. To where I think I, I talked about Humphrey Bogart on three episodes recently. So I, I'm obviously a boner for that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I'm just not into the the, the noir concept as far as a more modern film goes like brick does it very well i was gonna say he likes brick because brick is like subverting expectations and doing something interesting with that and this is just really just doing those expectations and doing exactly what it is it's like "Eh, i don't know do humphrey bogart Uh, all brick did was take that concept while we're on that subject though we can actually make sure there are no loose ends on death by dvd we never gave cult points on that episode to brick it's a five out of five there you go it's brick i was gonna give it a four point five because there are some scrutinies but we got that out of the way so what are we moving on to next we i think we have kissed fred olin ray's ass enough to teeth. Teeth. Yeah, i don't know if we're gonna teeth. i think we're finally out of the the fred olin ray woods the deep deep woods of fred olin ray which he does have just a catacomb of stuff to go through there are so many titles that's a beast of its own but incredibly talented guy funny guy wrestler comedian he's a song and dance man but where are we going next well, let's see what else we got because we've got. Um, well, I guess we can go into the George Kennedy offering of Demon Award. We got two pretty good movies left. It's funny I forgot to mention though. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is is ranked number five on Maxim's greatest B movies of all time. It's a, it's a fifty movie list. I thought the, the title first, alone. Yeah, I thought the first four were somewhat interesting. I will say the cover art, the poster with Michelle Bauer and the uh, the chainsaw is pretty epic. That's one of the best things about the movies that poster art, but. No Number one is Death Race 2000. Number two, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which I strongly disagree with. Number three, Escape from New York. And number four, strong disagree, Poison Ivy, The New Seduction. Number six is Evil Dead. Seven's Coffee. Eight's Texas. Nine's Phantasm. Ten's Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Eleven's Chained Fucking Heat. This list isn't that great. There's it needs some, some okay things in there. Poison Ivy: The New Seduction as the fourth greatest B movie of all time because it's Jamie Presley's big fucking new movie that everybody obsessed about in the mid '90s. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers is much better. Escape from New York, I don't argue with. Beyond Valley of the Dolls as the second greatest B movie, no sir. Phantasm's not a B movie. That's upsetting. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that's an art piece. Fuck off. The Hitcher's number 13. This is ridiculous. But look at what you're, you're referring to a list by Maxim, uh, a fucking magazine by douche bros for douche bros. It's 2019. Shit. Donald Trump is the president, and Gatorade's good for you because it's got electrolytes in it, and that's what plants need. Maxim is our only real source of news, Nash. Come on, get with the times. Fuck that. Yeah, let's move on. Let's get into George Kennedy and Demon Warp, uh, a story by John Carbeekler. 
of the I, late Beekler. The good old Beekler, may he rest in peace. But I believe I said to you upon, upon evaluation of this movie, oh, it's got George Kennedy in it. It can't be bad. Like, that's my, my, my I guess, George mythos. George Kennedy life. did so many bad films in his career, especially the last, like, 15 years of his career. But according to local funny man Hank, the world's greatest, if it's got George Kennedy in it, eh, it can't be that bad. And um, I'm not wrong. It's, it's pretty bad. This it's is one of the fucking bad. best movies on the list. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and it only features one of our holy trinity of amazing scream queens. And it's, it's funny. Mostly. Yeah, she takes so long to get into the movie, it's mostly for her to get naked. But then once she starts getting into it, she's the only person in the entire movie next to George Kennedy and whomever's in the Bigfoot costume that actually fucking put forth an effort to act. And it's relieving. You mentioned this at the beginning of the movie. Sometimes these ladies show up and they just get nude and that's what they were hired for, like Linnea Quigley and Jacko. But the brief time that they are on screen otherwise, it's like a Dick Miller sort of thing. It's pretty much the only thing that you want to watch. It's a scene-stealing thing, and this is really great with Michelle Bauer because she starts pretty much as uh, a tanning drinking and driving bimbo a lot of drinking and driving in the 80s it seemed okay they go out to steal some pot from a weird pot farm get attacked by bigfoot but since she really gets her credentials as a scream queen screaming her lungs out for the next what i'd say 15 minutes or so (laughs) well the plot of this movie is absolute fucking nonsense it's about george kennedy living in the friday 13th part four house in the cabin no shit it's the same one um and his daughter is taken by bigfoot and then a group of college teens go to the same cabin to have a good time on the weekend, and we fuck around in the woods forever. And well, they didn't right just go. People. They didn't just go to have a good time. I mean, they were locked and stocked with ammunition. They were one of them had an ulterior motive that he knew of the big footies and our big feetses. I guess you'd call it. I don't know what the plural is. Big big, big feet eyes. Big feets, big feetses. I don't know. I don't know what the because well, they not they, these are wear feet, wear foots. Is what I decided to oh, call Oh, we them. don't know that until the end, though, that they're, they're, they're wear big feet. Yeah, wear um, foots, coining the phrase. The, the story itself, like, is literal nonsense because we go through about uh, 45 minutes to an hour of this Bigfoot hunting thing and Bigfoot, like, dismantling. And it plays out as a pretty legitimate, you know, scary Bigfoot movie. You don't have any weird ulterior motives. You've got a lot of nudity. Uh, you get a decent fight scene with the Bigfoot. Somebody's neck gets broken. It gets pretty buck wild it's spicy it's pretty thick and then it completely changes terms once they get deeper into the woods into this like survival quest sort of thing which it's by emmett alston so well i mean what we get to is what am i thinking of what did I, what else did he do he did um who cares <laughs> we're talking about demon warp here yeah but it's um, emmett alston the uh amazing emmett cinematographer and he did a couple of like terrible movies as a director overall New Year's Evil, he did Tiger Shark, he did some amazing movies. No, Nine no, those are amazing. These Nine are Deaths of the Ninjas, great. Movies. What are you talking about? Force of the Ninja, Little Ninjas? Oh, great. He's one of the ninja directors. Um, but where we ninjas. go towards the end of this film is they're wear big feet because an alien is making big feet with a stinger it has on its tail. But are they aliens or are they alien zombies? No, he's an alien, but he's also creating zombies to rebuild his ship with the help of an, a 1700s preacher played by John Durbin, who was um, also in Return of the Living Dead as the um, Send More Paramedics zombie 
he was in uh, Caligari. It's a lot of these actors just show up in a lot of these cheap 80s and uh, early 90s B movies, and he's one of them. And it just it goes into some good places towards the end. You got another good connection with uh, Michelle Bauer because she did two movies with Ren's Dream. I think she actually made one with him. So yeah, and that's what I mean. It's just all this very incestuous relationship all these people have with each other in the B uh, movie scene. But specifically the California B movie scene. Oh, yeah. We're not talking regional here. This is all like Beverly Hills, Hollywood, Venice Beach bullshit. So, Which is I mean, funny. If you take George Kennedy out of this movie, you'll notice Michelle Bauer if you know who to look for, but you can easily mistake this for a regional film, that it really plays off that way. And it, you kind of expect at some point something to make sense, and you get this, like, I don't know, almost Italian zombie movie cut at the end of the slow-paced zombie attack, and then it's this weird alien sequence, and then one of the other guys is turning into a werefoot foot and the wear foot the whole time the big foot's been the guy's uncle it just goes all over the goddamn place and uh yeah you know, once you introduce the zombies it just it goes into a whole different direction and i guess that's what the demon warp is because the title is fucking nonsense it has nothing to do with the rest of this other than i guess an alien crash land on earth in the 1700s i'd like to know what exactly beekler's original story was or, or what he wrote that this became such a, a, a I more probably I want to make a Bigfoot suit, so why don't we do something with Bigfoot in the woods? And that was probably the extent of Beekler's involvement of doing the special effects. Again, I guess a commentary on my taste. I will defend Demon Warp is not a necessarily bad movie, but I will point out that it came out in 1988, which is the same year that Night of the Demons comes out in, um, Slimeball came out in. So a lot of other movies with budgets compared to this, you can watch and say are good or bad, but Demon Warp has a very bizarre charm to it. It's just kind of fun. A mess movie is what I like to call it. It's a lot of ideas that don't ever really pay off, and we've got to turn out a product. We're making a horror film here, and I, I think they are, they were happy with the overall product that they made, but I don't think anybody knew how to market it because it's just, it's, it's so many things. So just stick George Kennedy's face on it and call it Demon Warp and move on with our lives. Well, it got one hell of a poster. I, this was one of the most misleading things. So people knew how to market this. All right, the movie's ridiculous. Let's give it one amazing poster and then we'll uh we'll sell it so it worked i'm sure it made something back but again you know it's demon warp have you heard of it probably not yeah i mean overall this movie that has been on youtube for free for years like vhs rips of it i don't think it gets that much love in the, the i think red letter media talked about it they did they did a uh, best of the worst with this on it was it did not win best of the worst on this show though at all um it was like it's okay it didn't get destroyed but um what was it um Oh, what is that Canadian fucking road trip movie, Brad's Girl, or something like that? Oh, yeah. I can't remember the exact title of it, but that's the one that they picked as best of the worst because that movie is The Room 2009. Demon War, but it's not that bad. It's watchable. It's watchable, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely watchable. I mean, it's more watchable, I think, than Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, personally, because it actually has kind of a plot and story going, as ridiculous as that may sound. We're going to need audience participation with this episode i demand you the listening audience facebook us instagram us email us deathbydvdofficial at gmail.com 
How bad is Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers? Is something wrong with me? Because I think it's fucking great, and and I need to know. I want to hear from you, the people. How bad is Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers? Give it to me on a one to ten scale. Ten being the best. I am not being the worst. personally into movies that are making kind of a terrible movie and are in on the joke themselves. I would prefer you not know you're making a terrible movie, or you just try to make something interesting as opposed to just, yeah, I know we're making a piece of shit, so here it is, and accept it. Wink, wink, wink. I'm not into the winking part. I am. I like the winking. To me, I think this is like the quintessential Fred and Ray movie, though. I mean, I know a lot of people go for stuff like evil tunes, but Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, that's what comes to mind, namely for me. And I think because it's just such a bitter, sarcastic movie making fun of itself, that that's just what I kind of associate. I go for Scalps. Scalps is good. It's, it's probably his cheapest movie uh, next to Alien Dead. Alien Dead's a fucking, that's a shit pickle. Scalps is a uh, shit pickle. Shit pickle? You said you wouldn't bring up the shit pickle and you said shit pickle twice or you keep saying shit pickle the fucking commentary for Jacko is a absolute gold mine it is beautiful <laughs> and uh, we'll probably is, that's early Fred Olin Ray so yeah, that's that was a, his first Hollywood film and then we'll probably move on here in a second to uh, as we're getting uh, low on time to probably the best movie on this list, the most like best well-made film on this list, the most successful movie certainly, and, but I think and, the best movie. And his strive through the times to become um, a, a very huge cult classic that actually has two sequels. Um, so we're gonna move on to Night of the Demons. The Internet's oldest horror podcast, Death by DVD, will return in just one moment. So, Night of the Demons is going to be the film, as well as The Trailing Dead, that Lene Quigley will always be known for. And more than anything, I mean, she does a good performance in this film. Um, she does a lot of good acting, but that's not why she is remembered. Will be remembered because it's an amazing effect by her then boyfriend Steve Johnson, or flirting with Guy on the set, Steve Johnson. Maybe they weren't boyfriend and girlfriend at this point, but if the story I know is correct, which you know somebody could correct me on. I I believe they started flirting and talking when he had to make the breast mold for her, and that's where they kind of connected. And then on the uh, the Freddy movies, when he asked her to marry him. Yeah, I think they're yeah they're already an item at that point. Um, but this film, I will go on the record right now and say I originally saw this on HBO super late at night. And I did not like it. I hated this movie. I thought it was cheesy, and I thought it was stupid, and I thought the special effects sucked. My story is so much better than yours, because somebody came to me and said, hey, man, there's this wild movie where this chick puts lipstick in her tits. You gotta find it. And I went, that sounds kind of cool. Okay, so we went video store hunting for weeks until finally, because you look at the you know box art for this movie, which is a completely horrific demon eating a skull lollipop. It doesn't. Part two. It's this is really, Angel holding the invitation. What's the first one? That's that's the, that is the first one. It's her holding the. Uh, it's got the invitation of Freddie oh, and Jason will go to this party or whatever. Yeah, she's and got she's got the crown on. Okay, so still yeah. that that still doesn't scream to me. Chick putting lipstick in her tits. So I was always going for those like Warlock Part 17 movies. You know, you'd see that whole series constantly in the background near the porn at the video store. Oh, you mean Witchcraft? Witchcraft, 
Yeah, how the yeah, was terrible. Yeah, I always figured it was one of those movies. Till finally, I caught this late night on TV, and it was right around that scene. And you know, I'm 14, 15 years old, so it was a big part of my horror history. Is I just got to find this movie where the chick shoves lipstick in her tits. Well, I don't even know why she would do that. That sounds bizarre, and it is. It's weird, and I still don't know. I have since since that day because I the first of all I like I thought the wraparound of the old man eating the apples was just dumb in general that's my favorite part you're dumb because how the fuck are you gonna make a pie and not realize you're eating a goddamn razor boy that's that is stupid fucking thing it is could not possibly happen what would have made more sense is he was gonna poison the candy and it was cyanide but regardless the throat cutting open and blood gushing razor blade good effect but it looks cool my problem with the Steve Johnson effects was completely and utterly biased because really in actuality they're really awesome effects they're great effects but I had a hard on for Tom Savini at this point and I remember having a fight with this kid at school who kept he was trolling me basically for the 80s way I mean it wasn't called trolling but that's what he was doing he just it was like it was trying to bullying, get at me wasn't it good old fashioned well, no. it was friendly good natured bullying though it wasn't like constant bullying bullshit it was just us having a a thing where I was just like, no, Tom Savini, he's the man, he's God. And he kept going on about Steve Johnson's effects being way better. And I was like, so a friend that really liked Rob Bottin. I had a very, like, like, bad taste in my mouth for Steve Johnson at the, like, this point. And then, so I biased my opinion towards the. But since, like, watching it in subsequent years, this is a really awesome film. It's a really well made film. It's a really well shot film. It's, um,. It's just actually a, a classic. It's a Halloween classic for me. It's something I watch every year on now Halloween. Now, like when they put the Shop Factory Blu-ray out, I fucking got all over that shit. And I watch it every Halloween now because it's just the quintessential Halloween film. And Linnea gives a uh, good performance, a very noticeable performance, especially for the special effects she's involved in. But overall, I think the acting on all hands is really good. Um, the amazing Hal Havens, he returns. Right. Yeah, he's in it, um, playing the uh, what was it? What's his name? In the Stooge. Stooge. Yeah, the ultimate punk rock douchebag. He's got yeah. a sweet side mullet and half of it shaved, and some gnarly earrings. He is the ultimate comic relief character in this movie and Slimeball. But I mean, you know, most people generally know the plot of this film of just a house that's infested with demons. And it seems to be a very common theme in '80s uh, nude exploitation B movies that there's some form of seance that people are going to get together, they're going to have a seance, and it's never like, let's pop out the Ouija board. This one's a mirror. The other movie, it was a crystal ball. It's always a very odd source of where they're trying to channel the demon. But in this case, you have the whole backstory of the house and the property being formerly haunted for years and years and years I would say out of all the films we talked about tonight I mean it was made generally with the same same people I mean Kevin Tinney was not fully a member of that Dave Dakota crowd but he was you know he was he was on the, the verge of it he was on the edge of it but this one comes off as almost an A picture it's just really well made for the budget they had with the special effects the acting um, it actually has a story unlike a lot of these other films it's not an excuse to just have nudity um, it has real characters and real intentions to it, and I think it's just incredibly well made. 
uh, overall as a film. A lot of the nudity is a less minor than some of the previous films with the Scream Queens. You've got one of the most infamous scenes, the sour ball scene in this movie that pretty much is what a good solid four and a half, five minutes of Linnea Quibley's crotch and ass. And it's while Angela's stealing from the store and she turns around and has the greatest line in the entire movie. Do you guys have any sour balls? Yeah. Well, guess you don't go many blowjobs. And then she walks out triumphant. It's amazing. And it's always Linnea Quigley with the comic relief here. I just want to look good for the boys. There's going to be cute boys, right? And this might be, I mean, I'm just going to go out and hit the limb here and say this might be my first experience with full frontal nudity. And that would have been Linnea Quigley when I was just amazed when I watched it for the first time. I was just like, oh, my God, this is going all This is crazy. No, I can't believe there's a fully naked woman in this. I don't know what type of conversations you have with your mother. But earlier today, I was chatting with my mom and brought up with her. You know, it's kind of funny. Out of the trinity of Scream Queens, two of them do full frontal all the time, but Linnea Quigley's most infamous full frontal nude scene, it was uh, like a plastic cap they put over her crotch, the whole little bald cap thing in Return of the Living Dead. And my mother turned and said, nope, dumbass, full bush in Night of the Demons. And she's correct, full bush in Night of the Demons. Mary, she knows it. It's, it's very startling in this film as well because it just seems unprovoked and it's there and it's very because um, it's, it's very sexual but not in like a fun way it's almost in a dangerous way it's, it's neither perverse nor sexual it's very uh, well placed and it, it's like a possession level um, of uh, like uh, unhappiness the mirrors well, she has the, the heart done a lipstick on her face and there's obviously something very wrong with her and now she's fully naked and being very um, sexual towards this person, this this man that she's coming on to because she's possessed by a demon and it's just it's very startling and the way it's used and I think Tenny did that on purpose um, I don't think it was just for exploitive purposes of having her fully naked, I think it was there as a little bit of a shock value I mean you have two aspects, you know you can work with something really great and provide a great deal of shock value and you can get that creep Linnea Quigley audience that just wants to see her nude and doesn't actually want to watch her perform so you got two birds with one stone she actually gets to act and do what she wants to do and all these people will buy tickets because they get to see bare naked breasts with come on blood boobs beast it's the B movie way it's the Joe Bob way but nudity has a point it has a place a lot of these movies specific all of these movies nudity is a selling point most of these movies got where they were at because of the display of graphic nudity, but Night of the Demons was a pretty decent budget. I think it was something like $3 million. For its time, the subject matter, the cast, the people doing it, $3 million is a gift. That really shows, too, with what you've got. Special effects. And um, and it was, they're not, I wouldn't say flawless, but for this era and for, like, how you were describing pretty it. pretty goddamn good. Yeah, you, know, you brought up and referenced it as one of the uh, quintessential perfect Halloween movies. And to me, it even goes beyond that because this is just a party movie. This is something you can show friends that aren't super into horror. They're going to see something weird they'll remember and talk about. Remember that time you showed me that movie where the girl shoved stuff in her tits? It's so weird. I mean, that's how I learned about it. It's what people remember. And it's such a a provocative scene in the film because you don't really understand what's getting ready to happen. And then what does ultimately happen ends up shocking you because it is a very good effect, especially in the 80s when the film Grain would cover things. and You can't 
couldn't see the, the gelatin of the chest they use and things like that. I still like, was shocked by like, how the fuck did they do that effect? Was it a collapsing lipstick tube? What, what was that? But well, what makes it successful? See the gimmick. Well, what makes that completely successful is people talking about it. You know, you've made something that hasn't only achieved cult status, but has achieved classic status because people will continuously talk about what they saw because it affected them. So Night of the Demons is strong on the standpoint of just even look, we've not reviewed any of these movies. We've just been having a kind of free for all talking about them. But in a like traditional review sense, Night of the Demons always will score top points just because for one, it's got balls. It's absolutely different from anything else at its time period because this is the peak of the bubble. I'm not afraid of being graphic, not in a slasher way either, of being in a fantasy way. For a fantasy film that gets gory, it gets really gory and really well done gore at that. Well, this is the peak of that bubblegum pop horror era, and this pushed the boundaries. This was going back to pure sleaze and exploitation. This was H.G. Lewis, Roger Corman at his prime. It had a lot of balls and a lot to offer, but what really gives you contentment is it's a solid story and it's wrapped up. You have a great beginning, middle, and an end. You have a great uh, transition of who the characters are, the friendships, and the differences between them. And, you know, at the beginning, everyone thinks Angela is really creepy. Even once they get to the party, there's that, like the whole lighter scene of, you know, you don't want to disrespect the spirits. And this is before anything goofy has even started. So there's tension between them. Not everyone gets along. It's natural. It's not just like a stuck-up, bullshit, 80s party movie where everyone gets into one room and dies. You actually had some characters Characters to deal with and some fun. The movie starts off with a fun party, essentially. It's just an well, 80s real movie. characters in the film. I mean, they're playing real people. I mean, there's a few archetypes. There's a few people playing very arch characters. Yeah, you get the fat, kind of, funny guy. He's, well. You get the punks, the fat, funny guy. Linnea's the slut. She's boy crazy. I just want to look good for the boys. She's carrying the mirror the whole time, which effectively plays into her possession. You've uh, got... Literally, I, I use this term a lot, but it's a Shermer, Illinois movie, man. It's got all those same aspects of the princess, the dropout, the jock. You've just taken it and moved it into a, a new area because demons. Well, there's even like a, a testament to Kevin Tenney's directing style that the shot in the mirror in Night of the Demons where he frames like seven characters individually in shards of mirrors. That's a very difficult shot to get and to keep into focus and keep everybody on their mark. And he managed to get it. I think it's a really wonderful shot. And it's and not really a brief thing. the budget. It's not like it's a two or three second shot where they knew they could try and get this without a lot of effort. It holds for quite some time. And that oh, yeah. itself, some of the integrity of the movie, the set design, the movie itself looked pretty good. I think this was shot uh, somewhat long. I think it was like a four month shoot. So they had a a lot of time to get things done and a lot of time to do reshoots and really work on what they were, were dealing with. This was a higher budget movie, like I said, I think it was like $3 million. So for 88, a B movie, it was pretty successful. And like, I think what they were mostly able to achieve more than anything was developing a sense of tone for this film because it's a very consistent tone and a very creepy tone for ultimately it was almost like a direct-to-video release. It got released to some theaters. It made a good amount of money, but in most territories, it was a direct-to-video release and it really defies that budget and specifically with Linnea's performance. At first, before she's possessed, I, could, I can't really say much about her performance. It's just, it's kind of whatever, but once she's Well, I think possessed, that's the role. You know, she's the 
the ditzy quote unquote slut characters. So she's not. So, she's the airhead. She's the little bubblegum princess. Yeah. So once she becomes she's, possessed, it's a whole she's very effective in that role. When she becomes she's possessed. malicious and mean, and that's she's like lost almost. She almost looks like she's like a, got a mental issue as like when she's possessed with this demon. You almost you got that too with. Chainsaw hookers that she gets Shot up with the motor oil And just has this weird little scene of her Looking around kind of dumbfounded until She's pulled off and it's just her As a character actress being able to pull off Different mannerisms Linnea always Like even we swore we weren't going to talk about it But even Return of the Living Dead Her transition from the ultra goth uh, You know obsessed With death Bauhaus queen To a crying pansy doesn't know What to do that's a testament I mean that's probably one of the strongest character arcs now Next to uh, the brilliant Miguel Nunez Jr., the other spider. Yeah, and just in general, I think Night of the Demons is just, it's an 80s horror film that needs to be remembered stronger. I think it needs to be exposed to more people overall. Uh, I think a lot of people know about it, but I think it still has its cult following. It isn't widely known, widely known as being one of the, the better 80s horror films. Uh, I think it's a way better film than fucking Scream any day of the goddamn week. I'll go on the record with that one. Well, that's not much because I think anyone with sense would agree with you completely. <laughs> would you say this is your favorite movie on the list, the best on the list? I, I mean, I could even go so far as putting them in some sort of order and say I really like, I think, Night of the Demons. I think probably Sorority Babes, Nightmare Sisters, Demon Warp, um, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and Jacko would be the... the the order that I would put them in is best to worst. I would go with Sorority Babes, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Night of the Demons, Nightmare Sisters, Demon Warp, and then Jacko. You completely have your ass backwards list going right there. Well, you can take mine. You can take Alexander's Nashes. Alexander's Nashes. Night of the Demons is obviously the best movie on this list. I, you're I, going with slime Sorority Babes. Yeah, I'm really, really passionate about that one. It makes me laugh. It makes me cry. It's, it's good. It's fun, but I, I, it's no way up to the caliber of Night of the Demons. Well, Night of the Demons is missing one specific thing for me. Well, it's I'm sorry. It's missing three specific things for me. One, Frank Stevens. Two, Michelle Bauer. And three, Dookie Flaswater. It needed well, some Dookie. <laughs> whatever, it doesn't matter. Would you say if the Trinity of the Scream Queens was in this movie, it would have been better? I, I don't know if it would have made it any better. I think it would have made it a little bit more exploitive and a little well, bit more... I mean, you could have... Um, like a Dave Dakota fucking level, and I think it defies that by just having Linnea Quigley in it. Michelle could have been Judy, and Angela could have been Brink. It would have been great. I just don't see them being able to do that performance. I don't see Michelle Bauer... Like, Michelle Bauer as an actress is fun, and she's very funny, but I would never put her so much in a very, very serious role, and Neither Demons is full of very serious roles. And we also needed a high school-age chick for this. Uh, Linnea Quigley was pretty hesitant to take the role for this movie because she felt she was a little bit too older to be playing a high schooler, and when she tried out, you know, she got the role right off the bat because it's Linnea fucking Quigley. That's one thing that will baffle baffle me reading stories of Linnea Quigley questioning herself. If you're listening out there, Linnea, don't question yourself. You're Linnea fucking Quigley. 
you can do anything to film history i am not being facetious at all i think all three of these women were very important to film. Uh, certainly all, all three really in the 1980s yeah all, all of them really have a, a massive point and people when you when you want to be a film nerd and talk about film history of course there are jean-luc Godard movies that came out in the 80s and Werner herzog movies that you can talk about but the b-movie industry and how these guys like fred olin ray and dakota went out there and made movies transitioning from the Roger Corman era it was almost like moving to the digital era with um, you know streaming and media these guys took something completely new completely different they ran with it and did things their own way almost making a completely new style to the point that Quentin Tarantino's fucking career started because he borrowed a camera from Fred Olin Ray and shot his first picture with it like these guys were a tight knit scene that work together and probably the only real era of Hollywood where you had like an interwoven blanket of people that gave a shit and, and helped, you know, that they would go work on each other's movies and take different credits and not fuck each other over for a percentage and the product itself, whether it be B movies or nudie cuties or bikini beach movies, softcore porn slashers, it doesn't matter, even your low budget action movies that were, you know, Chuck Norris was pumping out exploitation movies in the 80s, it was the scene. Uh, God, Rocky movies, not Rocky, Rambo movies even to an extent, are exploitation. What was so important about this era is, more than anything, that a small time producer, someone like Fred Olin Ray, Dave Dakota, was able to put a movie out that was given the same amount of respect on that video store shelf and really was the great equalizer was video stores because theaters and drive-ins were never comparable back in the 70s and 60s. Once you get to the 80s and video stores, nobody knew what they were ringing. Nobody cared about budgets. They were box arts would matter. Things that had interesting box art. So you might watch something that's really terrible or you might get something that's really good. And these are prime, exam- prime examples. It was like a kinder that- surprise of, of life. You know, you don't know what's going to be inside the candy. You just got to run with it but what's interesting it makes fred olin ray so significant is his just vast fucking product because you could get an absolute shit flick about aliens or this somewhat decent budget action movie and then you know i think joe bob briggs said this but fred olin ray is the type of guy that can prove you can shoot a movie on monday release it on tuesday and have it out by thursday and in theaters he just knew how to do things and that era is gone even uh, we mentioned brick earlier ryan Johnson. There is no way in hell somebody like Ryan Johnson could sit down and make a movie in four days. But guys like Fred Olin Ray, four days might even, they might have extra time to go do reshoots because they know what to condense. They know what to do. You're not going to get some four and a half hour director's cut of Midsummer from Fred Olin Ray because he knows how to write, shoot, and direct what's well, needed shit, to he be He didn't have any movie. extra footage. He had an hour and 14 minutes exactly and that's all the film he had. And he well, my, fucking- yeah, that's my point he knows knows how to write direct and shoot what needs to be in the fucking movie and not four hours of fluff you edit before you even start shooting that's the best way of doing things is Uh, edit before you start and that way you don't have a bunch of excess shit to wade through later so on top of the screen queen scream queens god i can't speak tonight what gives a lot of these movies their soul to say is the people behind them and the scene behind them and all of these people working together throughout the the years very linked. Like, yeah, they, there well, is these no... people formed a bond and friendship that obviously has traveled over from movie to movie, and you can see how they work and interact with each other to the point that it made the film's quality a little bit higher. 
there is no like Frank Stevens without someone like Dave Dakota or Fred Olin Ray. Like the, the like there was a very mutual like thing going on, and they both like rose everyone else up. Everybody was working together and kept raising themselves up in this very like. Um, overly saturated market at the time and were able to eke out a living doing this without having to like bow to like you know studio standards or anything well too I think you have to realize how time and trend works and a lot of these people coming from the Roger Corman school of film realized how things change and work and new we're at, we got a boom we got a market let's jump let's do what we can let's bank what we can and uh, if it's a good day sometimes tomorrow sometimes you end up with good stuff like Night of the Demons and sometimes you end up with demon warp so (laughs) sometimes it would be a good day then sometimes the next day is whatever but the point of it is all of these people are filmmakers absolutely everyone Michelle Bauer Brink Stevens Linnea Quigley Dakota Fred Olin Ray by trade by life these people have involved themselves not only in exploitation and and part of film history but just film in general and they are filmmakers they have non-stop for all of them 40 plus years been working exclusively in the film industry and just contributing every piece they can. That's what they do. They're absolute professionals. I think that pretty much sums up the entire episode, Hank. That's our words of wisdom. Uh, we, we, We had something nice to say finally about... Namely, the three Scream Queens, Fred Olin Ray and Dave Dakota. Kevin Tanney's all right. We like him. Yeah, he did. He did his uh, his his bit in, in that era. And I think he he ended up being like a weird as opposed to a B director. He's more of an A minus director. He was able to like achieve that level of status. George Kennedy's A plus. George Kennedy showed up for three days. He got paid. He got what he needed. The ashtray's full. The bottle's empty. Uh, and like that's 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 what I want to leave people with. Warefoot. Be weary of that. Warefoot. Wear feet. Yes, there's more than one. They're out there always. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Death by DVD has reached the end of another day of broadcast. Death by DVD is broadcast from on top of the blue crystal sunshine mountain in any town, USA, with offices at 123 